Good evening. Good evening. It's a, a pleasure to be up here um, and very humbling. Uh, the last time I got up here, I was asked uh, the same day to speak uh, and give a report about the Yosemite Conference. And uh, it was our brother Doug Dixon, and he asked the, the portion that I was given to give a talk about was uh, marriage. And at that point, I was married for exactly uh, a little over a month. <laughs> and uh, that was fun. Um, and I don't claim to be an expert about marriage or anything like that. But this evening, I wanted to go into something that is, it seems simple, it seems like something that we know, the topic of love. And I titled this message, It All Starts With Love. It's something that it's, we hear so much about. Everyone has an opinion about what love is. But the thing is, it really is difficult, isn't it, to really understand something that the world really skews and messes up. You know, they... I mean, to be blunt, the world views love when it comes to relationships as sex. Really, that's what it comes down to. And that, it's a sad thing, but that's the truth. But this evening, I wanted to look at 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. And just see what it says there about love and what love is. Who love is. And as I read through 1 John chapter 4, a challenge I give to some of you, maybe you'll take it up, maybe you won't, is count how many times the word love pops up in 1 John chapter 4, the portion that we're going to read. Before I continue, uh, let's go to the Lord. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you this evening that as we open up your precious word, we thank you for it. We thank you for the truth in it and the convicting power it has. Father, I know that my words, they're not very good. I'm not very eloquent. But one thing I know for sure is that your words, the scripture we have before us, is living and alive. So I ask that as your spirit leads and guides what is said, just ask that it would be a blessing to the hearers. Pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. A little bit about myself, um, maybe some of you might not know. Um, I am uh, Korean, and for those of you who don't understand the difference of North Korea and South Korea, I'm South Korean. I'm pretty sure it'll be very hard. There's very few North Koreans that you'll find in the US. Um, but one of the things that uh, Korean kids understand is that the relationship you have with your father is an interesting one. Um, I look at some of the relationships that a lot of you fathers here have with your children here at Claremont. And one that I had with my father is that my dad 
his English wasn't very good. He's been in the U.S. for over 30 years, and his English still isn't very good. And so you can only imagine that growing up in the U.S., or I was born and raised here, English became, you know, I spoke Korean. That was my first language. But once I started speaking English, going to school, Korean just kind of went to the wayside. And so the relation, I can, if I talk to any Korean kid that was born and raised in America, we have, we can understand each other. Because our dads, it's, it's hard to have a relationship with them. That is, uh, I guess, you're, one of the things that a Korean dad won't do is they hardly will ever say, I love you. you know? They hardly will ever show you physical affection. Um, there's a lot of things that uh, when you have a Korean dad, the relationship is, because probably another thing is cultural barrier, because I was born and raised in the U.S., and my dad is born and raised in Korea. And so there is that difference. But one thing um, is that he's, he's my dad. We're family. And because we're family, although there is that cultural barrier, although there is difficulties in language sometimes, yet we're still able to maintain a relationship. We're still able to talk. And growing up, it was sad because because of that barrier, it was easier to fight with my dad and see the negative things about him rather than seeing how much he loved me and how much he cared for me and seeing all the things that he, that he did for me. And when we, as we read in 1 John chapter 4, one of the things we're going to look at is the love of God. It's, it's going to say God is love and what the results of having a loving God love us and what that looks like when that love is expressed through believers. 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 7. And if you want, you can count all the loves that are mentioned, loves or loved. And really, because John, the epistle written here, is very straightforward. I mean, I could really read it and close, but let me just read it for you. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to, the, to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God in any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him, and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. We have come to know 
and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. Verse 20, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. 1 John you don't see, if you read through the, this book of 1 John, it doesn't say any names of someone addressing someone. It just says things like, these things we write. These things we write. And so you kind of wonder, who's writing to whom? And I was looking into that. And most Bible scholars believe that 1 John was written by the Apostle John. There is also some people who believe it was written by the Elder John. Uh, but uh, it seems like the Apostle John, if you read uh, the Gospel of John and the way it starts, and you read the intro of 1 John, they seem similar. Also, uh, the location uh, if it was the Apostle John, most likely it was written from Ephesus, written to the churches in Ephesus, and it was circulated amongst the churches in Ephesus. And the emphasis is on the gospel. And also, he also warns very passionately, and he's, he's very intense about his warnings and the way he says things in 1 John. He's, he doesn't have... He doesn't do any type of funny business. The things he says are very black and white. And some of the contrasts he makes, and I feel like these are the main points in 1 John, are light and darkness, love and hate, and life and death. The epistle is organized with the purpose for his writings. He says, I write these things because, and he explains it. If we say that one of the things that let's, I want to think about as we go forward is, if we say that we love God, there should be evidence of it that others can see. And the question I pose as we get into this passage is, is the love of God manifested outwardly in our lives for believers and unbelievers to see? But here, specifically, it's talking to believers, and how you love the brothers, or when it says brothers, brothers and sisters, the saints. So verse 7, beloved, it starts off. Beloved, this term, every time I, I it's a, a passage or a verse starts off beloved. I mean, you think of, and it's not something that you say very often to anyone. I don't, I, I don't know if I've ever said it to anyone, really, you know, beloved 
it doesn't really come up in conversation very often, you know, when you might say, oh, my beloved um, wife, maybe, but it's not really something that you say to the person. But one, in this letter, it opens, this passage opens this way. I think of John and the way when he's writing, he's thinking of the people he's writing to. My beloved, and you see that he calls them my children um, and other endearing terms. And it just, think about what is being said and it just, he really, I mean, cares. And it's talking, we're going to be talking about love. And you just, when you start off with the word beloved, it just kind of reminds you you don't say these things to someone you don't care about, you know. When a father gives instruction to a child, right, you say it. Let's just say, I mean, all, a lot of the, uh, the men are going dove hunting. And I, I never did this with my dad. But I'm sure if you fathers take your children out to shoot a gun or so, doing something dangerous, you're very direct with them. And you're, you're very serious as you give instruction, right? You tell them, be careful when you do this. Make sure you handle this properly. Don't ever do this, right? And I feel that that's the way John is speaking to us or speaking to the people and now to us here. And it says, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. So everyone who loves God is born of God. You think of our spiritual birth. The, the moment we trusted Christ for our salvation, we are born again, right? We think of the conversation that Nicodemus had with Jesus, and he, he questions him, and Jesus tells him, you must be born again. And Nicodemus is puzzled and he asked does that mean I have to be go back into my mother's womb and be born again no and Jesus explains to him no it's a spiritual birth and when you have that spiritual birth you have the Holy Spirit we read in scripture that resides in you you have the Holy Spirit and so with the Holy Spirit you are then able to know the things of God and the ways of God through scripture we're able to understand these things Verse 8, the one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. God is love. That is the definition for what love is. And a lot of young people are so confused nowadays because of social media and all these things that they look to for defining in their life. They look at social, social media and the things that are popular, and they think, that must be love, right? But here in Scripture, it's very clear, God is love. But one thing it says is, the one that does not love does not know God. I think this is a, something that's a very serious thought right here that, really, we have to examine ourselves. Not to say that we question our salvation. For those of us, you, you know, if you know the gospel, you trust in the work that Jesus Christ did on the cross. He died, he was buried, 
buried and rose again on the third day. You believe that he died, his blood was payment for your sins. And if you would just trust that work, repent of your sins, you'll be saved. But it says here, the one who does not love does not know God. What does that mean? Because it, it, for me, it makes me think, maybe there's times where I might question my salvation because I'm not lo- loving. Well, I think there is that aspect of it. I think there is. Because if you don't have any love in your life, if, if you don't show love in your life, it says God is love. You have the love of God. God so loved the world, and we're going to go into that in verse 9. By this, the love of God was manifested in us. It's manifested in us. It should be shown in us. And then an, there should be an outward show of that, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. God sent his only begotten son that we might live through him. I mean, in the morning, Sunday mornings, when we break bread at the Lord's Supper, and we think thoughts of the Lord Jesus Christ, his death, And how God the Father sent his only begotten son. And we, we are met, I mean, we can think of the very famous past, or verse, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. I hope that none of you ever get sick of hearing that verse. And the, the amazing thoughts that... God the Father had toward the world, that he loved the world. That he gave his only begotten son because he loved the world so much. That we might live through him. Verse 10, and this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. We can look at Romans 5, 8, and 10. And you don't have to turn there. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we, were, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And verse 10 says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And we think of how we were enemies. Our, there's no reason why a perfect and holy God should die for us. I mean, he really didn't need to do that. But because of his great love, the Lord Jesus Christ went to the cross for us. And these aren't aren't thoughts that are foreign to us, but it's a reminder for us. God is love. And we think it says in verse 10, the latter part of it, he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And we think of how in the Old Testament, when it came to the sacrifice, the day of atonement, and we think of the mercy seat and how the mercy seat was made. It was made of acacia wood, and there was inla- it was inlaid with gold inside and out, and there was the mercy seat on top of that or I'm sorry, the mercy seat 
on top of the, that uh, Ark of the Covenant. And how beautifully the descriptions are. And it just tells of the glory of God. But we think of the mercy seat and how there's two cherubims on it looking down on the mercy seat. Now, once a year, the priest goes in and sprinkles blood on the mercy seat. To sh- and that's a picture for us. It reminds us that Jesus Christ was our mercy seat. And he was our propitiation. He was the one that satisfied the wrath of God for our sins. And that picture of that blood on the mercy seat reminds us of how precious the blood of Jesus Christ is and how powerful it was. And it reminds us how much he loved us. And that's, that's just, it draws us back to him. It draws us back to his love. Verse 11, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Again, a reminder, we ought to love one another. And it's funny because it says we ought to love one another. It doesn't say, and later on it gives us the commandment of loving our brother. We ought to love one another. And sometimes I think it's... I haven't, I mean, I haven't been alive for that long, but I've seen my home assembly a few times split. And to see that happen, because brothers cannot reconcile small differences, they just can't figure out how to love one another. It says we ought also to love one another. And I know that sometimes it's hard, to be honest. It's hard. Sometimes there's people that you think they're, they're unlovable. Sometimes it's almost impossible to love someone. And this, is, this whole passage is directed at people who have trusted Christ, and now they should be loving. And we think about the people sitting next to us here at at this assembly. Is there anyone that we have trouble loving? Is there anyone that's, sometimes it's difficult really to, to even talk to them, to maybe even look at them. But it says, we also ought to love one another. And it's not, it's a, a simple message, but it, sometimes it can be very difficult. Verse 12, no one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. Now verse 12, it says no one has seen God at any time. It's funny because you think back in the Old Testament and you think of Adam and how he walked with God in the coolness, in the, 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 I think, the evening times with God. And Moses, how he, his face glowed when he was speaking to God, after he spoke to God. And we think of Isaiah and Ezekiel and other people who it seems in Scripture had seen God, and you wonder, 
John, why are you writing this? No one has seen God at any time. What does that even mean? I mean, there, it seems like people in the past have seen God. And, I mean, it was, it was kind of hard to figure out, to be honest. I read this over and over again, trying to figure out, what does this mean? Um, and even thinking of, uh, I've had conversations with some of you about uh, my Jewish coworker. And he tells me, you know, he even brought this verse up actually last week. And he said, if you claim to say, you claim that Jesus is God, but then it says here, no one has seen God at any time, it, doesn't that contradict? That doesn't make sense. But one of the things when it comes to Jesus, we realize is that Jesus humbled himself. And he became a man taking on the weaknesses of man. And we see that the emotions that, that the Lord had. And I, I wouldn't say there are weaknesses in the sense that we think of weaknesses. But, I mean, physically, he became like us. He had the, he would get fatigued, we read. And so, we, when it says no one has seen God any, any time, no one has seen God at any time in the, the fullness that is God. The fullness. Not, not that we haven't, no one ever saw Jesus. Not that no one ever saw, I mean, in the Old Testament when we read it, not that they might not have had seen a glimpse of God. And in verse 13, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. Now, I think about the spirit that has been given to us, and we read in Galatians, the fruits of the spirit, and it starts off with love. And I think there, there's something in that. And we read the familiar passage in 1 Corinthians 13 that talks about love and the importance of love. And if we do anything without love, then it says, what's the point of doing it? Verse 14, we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God abides in him, him and he in God. We have come to know and have believed that love, the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. It just all goes back to, we think of the love of God. If we confess that Jesus is the Son of God, and I hope that every single person in this room has made that confession, that Jesus is the Son of God, that God sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. There's no other way. Jesus is the only way. And we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. And we think of abiding in God. And oftentimes, to be honest, it's really hard. It's really, really hard. I mean, I, I complain to some of you, and I really complain a lot to my wife, uh, and it's kind of fun to say my wife, but um, <laughs> to my wife, uh, Rachel, I, honestly, I, I really, I mean, I complain to her, and I vent to her all the time, about how 
difficult it is at work. I mean, how difficult it is to, to deal with the, the management and the people and the gossip and all these things. I tell her all these things and just I get caught up in that, those thoughts and the busyness of work and all that happens. And then I end up not end, being able to have time spending time in the Word, being able to read the Bible, being able to spend time in prayer, doing things that is abiding in God, abiding in His love. And if you read in 1 John, His Word, abiding in His Word, understanding His Word, that's how we abide in God. And yet oftentimes, as believers, as Christians, we often neglect the Word, don't we? We often neglect to abide in God by abiding in his word, by spending time in prayer. By this love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We think of the day of judgment, and one day we're going to stand before the Lord at the bima, at the judgment seat of Christ, and we're going to give account for everything that we've done. But one thing that we can understand from what we just read right there is that the love is perfected in us, with us, meaning because of the Lord Jesus Christ, because God the Father's love for us and for the world and how he sent his only begotten son for sinners like us. And if we trust in that work of Christ, we are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Right? We're clothed with the righteousness of Christ so that we are perfected. Love is perfected. And so that when we go before the Lord in that day of judgment, the one thing that we can point to is the Lord Jesus Christ and the sacrifice and the payment that he made for our sins. That's it. And we don't have to fear. And that's what it talk, talks about in verse 18, that there's no fear in love because we under, understand the work of Jesus Christ and what has, it has done for us, what it, it has accomplished for us. And the one who fears is, I'm sorry, the one who fears is not perfected in love. We think of that, that end of verse 18. The one who fears is not perfected in love. I think sometimes many of us have a lot of fears. We do. I mean, as a parent, when you're raising your child in this society, you're afraid of the things that this child, the influences that this child has. You're afraid of the things that this child will learn from others who are not godly, who do evil things maybe, who, you know, you name it. There's so many things in this world that can corrupt a child. And, I mean, we pray for all these newborn babies and babies on the way here at this assembly. And we have these fears, but one thing we realize is that we don't need to fear if you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior. There's nothing to fear. And I think 
I've heard, I hear of, you know, some believers and they have all these fears in their life. They're, fear, they're fearful of what happens when uh, the, the things in government, when all of that hashes out and we get a new president. What's going to happen? The fear of the unknown. You know, I, I look at my coworkers, and I, I mentioned this to some of you. It's so sad because they have no hope. I talk to them, and they talk of retirement. And many of uh, the post office, and it's it said that in the next 10 years, 70% of the post office is going to be retiring. 70%. And all those people that are retiring, so many of them, they don't know the love of Christ. They don't know the love of God. They don't know. They've never trusted Christ as their Savior. Many of them may never even have heard the gospel. And so they have this fear of when they retire, all they see is their friends who retire, they just pass away. And they see that, and honestly, they're afraid to retire because they think, once I stop working, what's going to happen is I'm just going to die soon. We don't even know. And I even talking to one of my coworkers who's about to retire, he's a Buddhist, and he said, you know what, Josh, I saved up all this all this money, I put money into retirement, and I, I did everything I could to have money allocated so that when I retire, I'll be able to spend it, and I'll be, I'll be uh, at peace, really, because I don't have to worry about the finances. But then he said, but I don't know how, if I'm even going to be able to spend it. Am I even going to live long enough to spend all that money that I piled up in the funds that I have? And the thing is, we don't have to have any fear because the love is perfect. Fear, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. And when we look at the perfection of our Lord Jesus Christ and how we are clothed with his righteousness, we don't have to fear. Verse 19 to 21 is really the point that I wanted to get to. It, we love because he first loved us. You know, honestly, <laughs> if we didn't have the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, if we had not put our faith and trust in him, honestly, I think life would be so much more difficult. Because when in our lives difficult situ situations arise, and when we're when we encounter hardships in our life, our reaction to those things should be different. Oftentimes it's different. There, as a believer, when we see someone on their deathbed and they're saved, we have a joy knowing that they're going to be in the presence of the Lord very soon. And I think of my grandparents um, who passed not this past year, and they're both believers. And to be honest, as they passed, after they passed, my mom asked me, you know, how do you feel? You know, um, do you need to take a day off of work? And um, is it hard for you? And I told her, to be honest, I've been thinking about this a lot because I knew this was coming. And they're, they're face to face with their, the Savior. They're face to face with Jesus. 
And it, that's got to be the greatest thing in the world. And for a believer, when we think about that, and we've heard some messages this morning included about when we go face to face with our Lord and what thinking about that and living in light of that. And in this life, we have to understand we love because He first loved us. There's nothing good in us, there's nothing that we could have done without Christ. Without Christ, I mean, it's, as a believer, it's so hard to love people that are unlovable. We think about even the, the brothers and sisters around us, people who are believers and how hard it is to love them. And then we look at the unbelievers, coworkers, maybe friends, family. Verse 20 and 21, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, speaking of a brother, brother or sister, a believer, he is a liar. Wow. That's <laughs> one of the things I like about how John speaks, and it's something that I'm not very good at doing, is he's very straightforward. He says it like it is. And here it says, if you hate your brother, and if you say you love God, that doesn't make sense. You're a liar. And one of the things that, after reading through all of this many times, I just had to examine myself. And we all have to do that, examine ourselves, examine our relationships we have with brothers and sisters in Christ. Do you hate somebody in the assembly? Or maybe somebody you, maybe in another assembly, maybe in a church somewhere else, is there hate for a brother? Maybe there was an argument that broke out. And, and now you, you just can't get along. You, you don't want to talk to this person. You don't want to be by this person. Has this ever happened to you? For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And what it's saying here is that you can't love people around you that you can physically touch and see, how are you going to love somebody, a God, who you've never seen? How are you going to do that? In verse 21, And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. And I like the way he phrases that. It's a commandment. It's not, it's not a suggestion. It's not, maybe think about this. Maybe when you get in to, uh, into an argument with a brother, Maybe you should do this. This is a commandment we have from him. If you say you love God, if you love God, you should love your brother also, flaws and all. Because let's face it, I mean, who's perfect here? Are we gonna, is there anyone we could point to and say they're perfect? No. One of the things that I talked with Rachel before we got married is one of the commitments we made is, and hopefully this is something that we've all done, is that when we get married, we're going to love each other, flaws and all. We're two imperfect people coming together in the name of Jesus Christ and representing him, and we're going to love one another, mistakes and all, difficulties and all. And we, we say those lines in the marriage vows, 
you know, in sickness and in health, till death do us part, you know, and uh, all these things. This is a command from God. Because if we say we, if we, say we love him, we need to love our brothers. And I ask all of you, do you love your brothers and sisters here at this assembly? Can we, can we say that I love everybody here? And that, just, that doesn't mean to say that we have to get along with every, everybody completely and everything is just uh, smelling the daisies and easygoing. It's not like that. Just like I was explaining in our marriage, we're working things out. And I'm sure those of you who ha- are more experienced in marriage, you, you can understand this a lot better, that you work things out in your marriage. When it gets difficult, you work it out. You, you do everything that you can to understand your spouse. And in the same way, we're spo- that's what we're supposed to do with our brothers and sisters. If we have the love of God in us, we should be loving our brothers and sisters. Not just overlooking, overlooking um, things. And uh, we know that there are things in Scripture and it talks about uh, how uh, and we went through this um, in Timothy about the word of God and it's good for correction and reproof, training in righteousness. And that's things that we need to do with our brothers and sisters. But at the same time, we also need to love. And it's not just uh, a love that's, uh, I guess, heartless. Maybe you just say that you love somebody, but you really don't. You, um, it's not just, uh, and there's, I mean, I meant to go into, and I'm sure it's been mentioned before about uh, in the Greek, there's four different loves. But in this passage, it's all talking about the agape love, that the love that you have uh, between, that God has for man, and man can try to give uh, back to God in our worship. So going back to the question I asked you in the beginning, is the love of God manifested outwardly in our lives and in this context to believers? I mean, it's so easy to fight about uh, the smallest things, to quarrel about it, uh, to gossip about it, but is that loving? Is that, is that caring? Does that show the love of God in our lives? And that's the question that I wanted to leave with you. Is the love of God shown in your life? And I, it's something that it really we need to work out, right? Um, By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. Let's live for God. Let's live and understanding the love that we've received, show that same love to the brothers and sisters around us. Let's pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you for the love that was demonstrated to us while we were yet sinners, while we were 
enemies of you. Father, you sent your only son into this world to save wretches like us. Father, it's a simple message, but yet it's so complicated. It's so difficult sometimes. And Father, I just ask that at this assembly, those here, we would, able, we would be able, by the power of your spirit, leading and guiding us and helping us to show love to our brothers and sisters. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that you sent your only begotten son into this world to demonstrate a love towards us, to us, for us. We just ask that we would be able to do the same. Back to you, back to our brothers and sisters. Pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.